got me so, so hooked on the podcast, There's No Such Thing as a Fish. <laughs> I love that podcast. You know what's funny is uh, Spencer just texted me about it, and that was how I knew that you guys finally, finally got hooked. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know what the show is, it's it's essentially random trivia fed to you by expert researchers. So if you want to be the most interesting person at a party or you want to be equipped mm-hmm. with a little anecdote to go along with almost anything, and if you like information given to you in fast little bites that's funny as heck. It's so well done. Every episode is like around 40 minutes. There's three facts per episode, so you're getting that bite-sized chunk of information that's digestible. But it's three main facts per episode, and then everyone swoops in with these wild supplemental facts. Yeah. And, okay, so <laughs> they were – I they got down this path, but one person – was saying, you know, oh, there's this – isn't there this mythological figure that, that sucks out your soul through your butt? Oh, I can't remember what it is. I can't remember what it is. And I experienced the thing that sometimes folks say to us, which is when you were screaming at a podcast because mm-hmm. you know the answer. Mm-hmm. It's ca- it's Kappa. It's Kappa. Kappa. It's Kappa. Hi. Hello. Kappa. Hi. There's a Kappa. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, it's never me and my thoughts now. It's me and that podcast no matter I'm what I'm so doing. I'm so happy. It's my favorite podcast for long car rides because it's so fast moving and you're constantly being entertained with new information. It's such a delightful time. And those folks are so good at callbacks. Their yes. comedic timing is B-A-N-A-N-A-S. As soon as I knew you were into it, I overwhelmed you and sent you a bunch of other British shows to watch that aren't podcasts, but but things like Taskmaster and uh, 8 Out of 10 Cats, because now you're in my world, baby. Welcome to just information overload with British people talking to you. And I owe you an apology because I haven't consumed a single other piece of that media. No, I mean... You got to do it when you're ready. You have to feel that it's the time and then you'll entertain yourself and you'll be like, this is great. But until then, you're not going to appreciate it because you don't want it. I get it. You better like wait until you're like, you know what? I want to check out that thing that Tracy sent me and then and then it'll be great. It does make me want to listen to There's No Such Thing as a Fish with tea and cookies. And they're also very Australian. It's not just British. They're mm-hmm. British and Australian. Oh my God, speaking of Australian, Tracy, did I show you cat dog bug water? Yes. Yes. We've talked about this a few times because I was I was sure that I was gonna be bug. And you're like, no. I think you said I was dog. Yeah, you're you're dog. What? yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the other night, Spencer Stark and I were hanging out with a Bria and we introduced her to cat dog bug water. Mm-hmm. And her reaction was the exact level that all of our reactions have been, which is this is the most entertaining, fun game ever. Yeah. And this comes from ABC TV iView, I guess, in Australia. But this one gentleman who is a surfer bro. He's a surfer bro. He mm-hmm. cl- he categorizes himself as water. So it's <laughs> surfer. But yeah. he says there are too many, too many classifications of animals and everything can be either a cat, dog, a bug, or water – and a dog is, he says, you know, like a dog, of course. Right. And then a, he says a big possum. You're like, okay. Okay. He also puts 
a panther in the dog category, uh, which is correct, even though they're technically cats. I, I support this. And then cats, he says, are are less hectic dogs, I think is the way he phrases less it. Less hectic so, dogs? I know. So he says a cat is a cat. Okay. Okay. I think he means a house cat. He also says a small possum is a cat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that one I agree with, actually. A bug is anything that he doesn't know what it is. Yeah, that that's fair. So I think he includes a platypus. Honestly, I don't know where else you would put that thing. Because poisonous. Uh, he puts bat in there because he says sonar is bug behavior. That's fair. Sonar is very bug behavior. I'm not going to argue with that at all, even though I would like to put bat in the, the dog category. But sonar is very bug behavior. And you would think then that anything with wings is bug, but that's not true because he puts a lot of birds in cat, actually, which I would agree with. I think a lot of birds are cat. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and then water is anything in the water. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would argue shrimp is more bug than water. Well, they didn't really get into crustaceans, <laughs> but crustaceans I think very often are bug. And I always take this a step further and thank God or Bria and I are very similar because she also thinks this game is fun and that was very <laughs> justifying. My favorite game where you just use this really small binary to try to group things that have no right to be grouped is sandwich or salad oh yeah is something a sandwich or is it a salad oh my god tracy is a human a sandwich or a salad Ooh. okay is there no soup option in here it's just sandwich or salad just sandwich or salad because here's my soup thing. is a salad i would argue that a sandwich and salad are remarkably the same thing it's just one has bread and the other one doesn't well the the real differentiation is the holder a sandwich is – but part – the holder is part of the defining characteristic of the object versus a salad where it's an amalgam, I think. Right. So a human, I think, is a is a sandwich because one of our defining features is our skin. <laughs> so a Christmas tree is a salad because leaves. Yeah. Okay. Because there's no holder. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bunch of things making something up. A soup is a salad because it's a bunch of stuff in yep. a bowl. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but – if a human is a sandwich, human hair on the head, salad. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. And then we got into a conversation about, I was saying, is the human brain a salad because ramen is a salad and brain is just the noodles for your head? Or is it a sandwich because the brain is holding all your thoughts? I would have to go – here's the thing. I'd have to go sandwich if you're choosing it for brain because, you know, you can have a, a sandwich that's a slice of bread and some peanut butter on it folded in half and that's a sandwich. Like there's not enough there's not enough individual pieces of a brain to make it into a salad. It's its own thing. And so if it's its own mm. unified thing, I would argue that it's its own unified thing holding something else, which is your thoughts. Mm -hmm. I hope someone listening to this is so unbelievably high – that they think we just broke through another dimension with this conversation. <laughs> well, and we also have to deal with the fact that thoughts are kind of ephemeral and brain is in the physical world. Yeah, yeah. And then we, but then you'd have to be like, our thoughts in the physical world? It's a whole thing. Here's my, one of my favorites. Uh, sandwich is a sandwich. Yeah. But when you have one of those sandwiches where as soon as you bite it, it kind of explodes out the back on your plate, then it becomes salad. 100% yes. I mean... <laughs> Get out if you don't agree with that one. That's just table stakes. <laughs> oh, this is the kind of fun Tracy and I have. <laughs> and I would say, why are we like this? But we know why we know. we're like this. We the know. question is the answer. 
Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. I would say probably, like, personality-wise, I'm a little salady. <laughs> Ooh. And I'm Tracy Harrison, and I, I, I yeah, I, I, I would say personality-wise, I think we're both sandwiches. I think we focus a lot oh. on trying to keep everything held in and together. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that I'm salad, and I'll say we, I guess, because... There's no separating us at this point. <laughs> no. You know how a salad is so good when you have all the ingredients, the separate but equal ingredients, but then as soon as there's too much of something, like as soon as there's too much dressing, it all falls apart and it's bad. Yeah. Like as soon as anything goes haywire, I am irritated and I am not good anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and this is Willie and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history. Oh, on this sand cat dog bug water that makes the world so fascinating <laughs> each week we research a sandwich or salad from history or mythology and then we write an original story to go along with our topic so if you'd like to support our show you can follow us on social media at willing and fable or share your listener legends and questions with us at willing and fable at gmail.com or on our website Oh, yes. Please share your listener legends. Oh, my God. Speaking of listener legends, Tracy, I have to read you an email uh, because the listener wrote in and it turns out I'm right about something. <laughs> Ooh, hold on. Okay. So this is from a listener named Chris D. He wrote in <laughs> and the story title is You Were Right, which, of course, piqued my interest. Of course. And he wrote. Sorry, not a story. I was just replaying the Pompeii episodes now that I can listen to them back to back. The struggle Rowan had over what to call a device that measures earthquake energy was especially amusing, only because she had it right on the first try. <laughs> a seismometer measures the energy, and a seismograph is an image that shows how that energy changes or is released over time. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Chris. That makes so much sense. A seismograph, graph being image, showing you something like, oh, of course. So the correct answer was seismometer? Seismometer. I feel so justified that that thought was hanging around my salad. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your salad it did a really, really good job with that one. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> that means a lot to my salad. <laughs> What's funny is how often you and I refer to our brains as soup when we're really stressed or tired. I enjoy that we've now got a soup salad. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet up there. <laughs> it's like a sad lunch. <laughs> or it's the best lunch. Come on. You've got, a, you've got a beautiful brain. I love your brain. Oh, thank you. Hey, speaking of beautiful brain, beautiful transition. What, what fun little doodad did you write us in your beautiful brain? Ah, yes. Another way that you can support our show. Or you can support our show by grabbing your friend by the cheeks, pressing your face nose to nose, and whispering into their eyes. But no matter what you do, we're just glad to have you here. Okay, listener, did you also get a little squinty when <laughs> you have you to? Can you imagine how else? awful that would feel? <laughs> I was standing next to someone chatting, and they had very bad breath. Oh, no. And they were very nice, mm -hmm. but they were also a close talker. And I kept trying to add distance between us conversing by doing the thing where you take a step back, but you leave your foot out so yes, that no yes. one can get too close to you. And I don't know how he kept thwarting it. And in my head, I was like, my guy, I need you to 
respond to my nonverbal social cues because I'm trying really hard to continue to like you. Yeah. That situation where you're in like a very uncomfortable half back bend because you're like, I still want to be engaged in this conversation and keep my feet where they are. But also every time I take an inch backwards, you take an inch forwards and this isn't working. I feel like there should be a nonverbal cue. And I'm sure some language has it. That is, I don't dislike you. This has been a good time. But I think the conversation has run its course, and I'm going to go for reasons that are my own. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think about that a lot. It's so hard to gracefully exit a conversation. I don't have words of wisdom. I just think it's hard to gracefully exit a conversation, and I wish I was better at it. Yeah. If anybody knows a friendly way to say, it's been real, best of luck. Other than the Midwestern (laughs) slap your knees, the like slap your legs. Okay. Aside from that one. No, no, I'm sorry, Midwesterners, but y'all are the worst at ending conversations because when I'm trying to go, I'm I'm halfway, I'm emotionally gone. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that Midwestern, that's frequently joked about where you're like, okay, time to go. And then you spend an additional hour standing by the door. Yeah, not for me. Can't do it. I love an Irish goodbye. Oh, oh, the the most Irish of goodbyes. I don't even know where, why it's called that, but. That That is the way. Yes. Just slip out. You tell one friend who would yes. be concerned about your well-being so that if anybody gets concerned, they're like, oh, no, they're good. They left. Yeah, yeah, they just had to dip out. We are friendly. We promise. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't sound the most friendly, but I promise we don't bite uh, often. I didn't say that. <laughs> I did not say that. I'm actually, I think, as a person, a bit bitey. Actually, you are. And I mean that literally. Yeah. The more – when you really love someone, you do go full like – what is it? Cute aggression. Like, I want to bite you. I just love you so much. I want to eat you up. You you, you do get very literal with that. It's really cute. Like, you know when you have um, dice that you are so beautiful you want to eat them? Like, dispel dice on the bottom of their boxes says, I will not eat the dice. Uh Or if you have a rock, like a gemstone Mm -hmm. that looks like a little gummy bear and you just want to eat it. Yes. Yes. But but it's your friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do genuinely get that. I, I do get it. <laughs> so we accidentally did another two-part We did it again. Series. We keep thinking that everything's fine and chill, and it's not. No, because we just – listen, you guys, we like talking to each other, and we like talking to each other about history, mysteries, and mythology – so that means all of you get multiple two-parters. It's it's a win-win-win. A win's a win's a win. A win's a win's a win is what I'm saying. So do you want to, as we as we move forward into the Greek fates, mm-hmm. do you want to start us off with a little story? What is life to one who has never lived? Is it joy, pain, panic, fear, greed, agony, peace, excitement, solitude, community, or something else entirely? You were my greatest trial, and I don't even think you knew it. You became so much a part of my existence that it was hard to see where I ended and where you began. You consumed all of my thoughts. You tortured my days, each of which led into excruciating nights. But the thing is, the real joke of it all is that you were nothing. You were no one. I calculated the lives of billions of people over thousands of years, and you, 
You were the only one who defied me. You weren't special. Or you weren't supposed to be. You were meant to live a simple, standard life. Birth, work, sex, pain, love, death. Nothing more, nothing less. Except that you were so much more than you were meant to be. And it nearly destroyed me. Great men and women have all bent to my will, always succumbing to my wishes in the end, and yet you, in your too small apartment, in your too large a town, never did what I wanted. I honestly thought you were cursed. I even asked my sisters if that was the case, but no. You were just defiant against a god you didn't even believe in. One who you weren't even sure was real. I could never predict you. When I thought you would go left, you didn't even turn right. You just went home. How am I supposed to work with that? I'm good at thinking on the fly. I'm good at last-minute changes. Humans rarely follow the logical or expected path, but you weren't even on the trail. I used to sit and agonize over what to do with you. Yes, you were agony to me. Do you have any idea what agony is to a god? <laughs> of course not. You are you, and everything that means. You'd make jokes. Oh, it was fate that I ran into you today. Or, must have been fate making me miss my flight. But it never was. I never made you do anything, despite desperately wanting to. But no matter what I did, I couldn't control you. And that made me feel like I was incompetent. It hurt. The sting of it. The ache. The ever-present pain of knowing you existed, and I couldn't do a thing about it. I would sit and wonder if you were meant to thwart me, hurt me, defy me, hate me, fight me. No. No, no, you did none of that, and still you marked me as a failure. One whose fate was in their own hands, and they didn't even know it. I used to hate you. I wanted to hate you. I think at times I really, truly did, but it never lasted. What is fate to the fated? Is it truth, life, God, the universe, time, pain, reward, knowing? No. No, it's none of those things. It's the inevitability of all that is to come. And yet, there was nothing inevitable about you. Except that I think you were meant to break me. So I went and I met you. You didn't know it. But I needed to know who was this person, this no one, who walked their own path amongst a world of people in my domain, on my planet, and in my universe. You lived in a world of your own and you thought you were amongst your peers. But there was something in you that echoed into something in me, and I worshipped at the altar of your mediocre life. I was there at your birth, 
It was a messy and complicated thing. Your mother screamed for hours as though the loss of you from her body would be the death of her. And it should have been. You were supposed to rip her in two, destroy the very person that brought you into this world, but she survived. And so did you. Wonder of wonders. And so you began my torment. Your very first breath in this world was an affront to all that I am. From the moment you came into being, my entire world was destroyed. I think that the wires got crossed that day. Someone or something certainly died, but it was not the one I planned for. Humans have such a strange capacity for feeling. You live such short lives, and yet you stuff them full and overflowing with emotions. I watched you stumble clumsily through your own existence, untethered and unmoored. What is fate to a god? A joke? A laugh? A game? A play where all the players know their lines and move across the stage in a way that only the director can control? Maybe we just like to think we're in control. You certainly taught me that I am not. The first time I saw you, really saw you, was decades later when you were a fully formed human. You had just suffered a breakup or a loss or something equally devastating, and you were curled on the floor of your shower. You were crying, wailing in that way that only humans can. And you took my breath away. You shouldn't have. You were no more beautiful than any other person, and no less ugly for that matter. There was nothing in you that was particularly strong or smart or courageous or caring or generous or loving, and yet there was nothing in you to which I could point out and say, this, this is the fatal flaw. The hubris, the cowardice, the anger, the greed, the envy, the cruelty. None of it was enough to destroy you. You carried on. You always carried on. You were just so constant. And it somehow reverberated through me. Ricocheted around like light refracting in a diamond. Memories upon memories, reflections on reflections, and worlds upon worlds. Each breath you took pinged through me like electricity. Then, one day, out of nowhere, when your hands were wrinkled and your hair the color of soft snow, the answer struck me so hard and so fast that it toppled me to the ground. I didn't want to be if you weren't there too. Who do I want to be if there was a world without you? All of a sudden, the realization that my entire being was centered around you took me by surprise in a way that, frankly, it shouldn't have. What is fate to the unknown? Fear? Glee? A journey? A promise? A delight? A thrill? A whim? A chance? This, I do not know. I still do not know. But because of you, and perhaps with you, it is something I could learn.
I haven't learned anything new in a very long time. And maybe that was the answer. Knowledge, understanding, growth, reflection, change. Is a god really a god if they've never known a difference? If they've always just been? I was born in the primordial chaos of creation, the ever-burning, ever-present something of the universe. I am all paths that lead to a destination. I exist in all time and in all space, and somehow still, you of all people have outrun me. So maybe existing wasn't the answer for me. After all, what is life to a god? This feels so in conversation with my Bermuda Triangle story. I feel yes. like the two narrators of these pieces would have really interesting heated debates over tea. Yes, absolutely. Which fate is saying it? So I left that vague intentionally because I wanted I wanted whoever was consuming the story to decide that on their own. Hmm. I did two things with writing this. Uh, one, which I hadn't done before, is I actually just improved a monologue and recorded it on my phone and then rewrote it and made it into this whole story. But the, the, the main idea I wanted to get across was there is a god of fate who is not in control of someone's fate. Hmm. And what does that mean? If you were the one that controls everyone and there's someone that you can't control, I imagine the the frustration of that causing them to spiral in a way that makes them almost worship the one who they can't control because it's the only thing in the universe that is like a god to them. It reminds me of, what is it, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue? I never read it. Yeah, it's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, and I know you would love it. I am 100% confident. Yeah. It also reminds me of, oh gosh, someone's going to have to correct me. I didn't read Fifty Shades of Grey, but from the <laughs> previews for the movies, which I also didn't watch, it seemed like CEO guy like was like, oh, I like you because you're not part of my machine that I can control. <laughs> it begs the question, is obsession love? Mm-hmm. Is obsession love? I, I think the way that the Greeks define love is really interesting because it's not just a single word for a single feeling. There's the frenetic, all-encompassing love that comes with lust, but there's another more subdued, long-term love, and, and all of them have different concepts. So I think obsession falls into one of those but isn't inherently what love is. So the different words for love – in ancient Greek, and forgive my pronunciation, it's eros, which is romantic, passionate love, philia, which is affectionate love, agape, which is selfless, universal love, storgia, familiar love, mania, which is obsessive love, ludus, playful love, pragma, enduring love, philosia, self-love. Oh, that's that's where that word comes from. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Today on etymology. <laughs> this sounds like mania. 
Yeah. And that's how I wanted it to feel. I wanted it to be a little disjointed. The paragraphs don't totally connect from one to the other. The thoughts don't necessarily have a clear end. It's very repetitive and obsessive. Obsession is a kind of devotion, I think. And at some point, I do think devotion becomes a kind of like a worship. Yes. And worship is kind of like love. So I can absolutely see how obsession is love. I think what I need to to do is separate what I think healthy love is from what could be defined as love. Is obsession a healthy love? No. Is it a form of love? Yeah, exactly like you said. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm not here to say love doesn't count as love because it's not healthy, but that would be like saying chocolate cake isn't food because it's not healthy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, that's a good point. I need you to read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue so badly, but this makes me think in our willing and fable understanding of the mm-hmm. world where all pantheons exist and are created equal – who does control the fate of this person? So who is the god that this fate is going to meet? And you're like, what? Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. Where did you come from? It's. I think that's exciting. This feels like a amuse-bouche for a longer story. Yeah. I, I had so much fun writing this. I did it over the course of a few days. Like I said, I started with that monologue. And then as I was just going about, the world would have – a paragraph here or a sentence there pop into my head and I would scramble and write it down on a piece of paper or in my phone. And and so for the whole time I was writing it, there was just these bits of this story quite literally floating around me in the world as I was going about my day, which was a really fun exercise. I like that. That's fun. Okay. So what happened <laughs> is we were going to cover the Red String of Fate and then – both of us or I or I don't know. I'll only speak for myself. Let's say I said if we're going to cover the Red String of Fate, we have to cover the Fates because yeah, no, we agreed on that. That was And Fate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we actually have been doing episodes in kind of the way that Tracy and I originally conceived of this podcast, which is very funny, which is one of us researching and the other one writing stories. The, I think the reason we didn't go with that in the beginning was because when we first started, I don't think we had enough of a body of knowledge to feel confident that – If we didn't do all the research on a story, then we could write a story about it because we knew enough. And I think after 120-something episodes, we've gotten this this foundational knowledge where I feel comfortable writing a story about something even if I didn't do all of the research on it. I would agree. It's also been topics that we do have foundational knowledge on. So even though hopefully I bring you something you didn't know before, (laughs) you do know about the fates. It is Mm – it is possible for you to write about them. There have been topics that if someone said, write about this before research, I you would have gotten a word. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if that. <laughs> so the ancient Greek fates are also called the Moirai. Uh, they're three goddesses whose power exceeded even the reach of the Olympians. And kind of correct myself from one sentence to the next Mm -hmm. Uh, in this case goddess is to kleenex as divine being with control over mortals is to tissue yep Uh, you know i always say it so glad (laughs) glad to hear it repeated (laughs) you know it's tricky in these uh, religions that are not 
as akin to Christianity mm-hmm. to say like divine being that can control people but isn't fully God but isn't not a right. God. Is worshipped but like isn't all powerful and yeah absolutely. And maybe is like stronger than gods. We just don't have language for it in English uh, always. So here mm-hmm. we are. We're going to go with goddess. Uh, more often than not, the gods answer to the fates mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. They were known to control the furies uh, and they were the wardens and enforcers of destiny. The term moirai comes from the ancient Greek meaning lots or destinies, or even parts of a whole. It's actually possible that the word merit, coming from Latin meritum, meaning reward, also evolved from the name of the fates. Oh, interesting. The three Moirai were Clotho, the spinner, Lachis, the allotter, and Atropos, the inevitable, believed to be a metaphor for death, which is so good. The inevitable? It's so good. The, I had never heard it as the inevitable. And for some reason, when I think of the fates, I don't know why my brain always remembers Clotho and thinks of Clotho first and then forgets the name of the other two. Yeah, because it's clothes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. In ancient Rome, the fates were known as the Parche, and they went by Nona, Decima, and Morta. Ooh, interesting, because that's basically like 9, 10, and death. That's how... <laughs> <laughs> 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, death, 12, 13, 14, 15. <laughs> you're right. Silly. Silly of me, of course. That's how we all count. So I don't know what I was doing. So if you're imagining the three fates as Disney's animated Hercules movie style fates, you're actually imagining the Grae or the Grae, depending so when you're talking about the kind of old crone, hunched over women sharing the eyeball situation? Yes, the three old sisters who had gray hair since birth, and maybe were old since birth, it's hard to say, and shared a singular tooth and a singular eye. They were the daughters of primordial sea gods, and actually s- stealing their vibe for the animated movie was a pretty cool choice visually. Uh-huh. Uh I would also say it's a pretty stark example of the way mythology adapts based on the needs of people at the time. Like, yeah, our us understanding the fates appearing like the Grae is kind of cool. And now it's become very universal because of how mm-hmm. universal Disney is. The pantheon of Disney. Uh, Medusa is another example of that. Yes. How she's now become a symbol for survivors of sexual assault. Rather than passing around a lone eye, <laughs> Theoi writes, Picture Clotho with a spindle or a roll, the Book of Fate, Lachis pointing with a staff to the horoscope on the globe, and Atropos with a pair of scales or a sundial or a cutting instrument. They're said to personify birth, life, and death, and thus kind of each have a domain, like a pop band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also, of, of course, Hakate is right there to think about, and uh-huh. the maiden, the mother, and the crone, especially with women. This is a, a pervasive way of imagining divine women. I would hazard a guess that we tend to think of women in these three phases because in many societies around the world for a very long time, the most important job of a woman was to give birth, make babies, care for babies. Mm -hmm. And then care for your baby's babies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so they were often portrayed as young, middle-aged, and old, but sometimes they were just all old, hot women. I love and that. And I, I think a lot of that comes from wanting to depict hot, bare-breasted women. Of course, later, we like to talk about how mm-hmm. we got a lot of naked people imagined in our ancient Greek mythology, ancient Roman mythology, because future artists needed an excuse to paint hot, naked women. Yeah. It was socially acceptable if it was from a myth. Otherwise, how scandalous. So this is one of my favorite paintings of the fates, Tracy. It's called The Fates Gathering in the Stars by Elihu Vedder. It's from 1887, and it's currently in the possession of the Art Institute of Chicago. This is beautiful. Okay, so we have what looks like is probably in maybe oil painting, but it's very muted in tone. It's very greens and browns and tans, and at the, the center and top of the frame, we have three women holding on to what looks like billowing fabric or a physical representation of wind. Like if you're a kid and you're under the covers. Uh-huh. It looks like or if you, you know, throw a parachute up and run under it, like that kind of vibe. Everything's got a lot of movement. Each of them is wearing a sort of sage green wrap around their waist and midsection, but they're all bare-breasted with uh, their hair also wrapped, I believe, in like a, a tannish fabric. And they're in very dynamic poses. And then what's at the very front of the image? It's scissors. So these scissors are fascinating because if you think about modern scissors, you put your fingers in either hole and then as you spread, they open. Yep. And as you pull your hand closed, they close. But these scissors are more in the shape of uh, if you've ever been given like cheater chopsticks as a re- as a person at a restaurant or like kid chopsticks, they have something holding each end of the blade and really, the only mechanism is squeezing, and then mm-hmm. they'll spread apart on their own, like kitchen tongs. Yeah. I would think that this painting became yellowy over time, and I bet their waist cloths were much closer to white. Oh. Because of the varnish that was used. Hmm. I also don't know this, but women covering their hair had religious and cultural significance at different points in the ancient greek world and i think that might be why their hair is covered for all i know it could be the vibe it was painted in 1887 right yeah it it doesn't look it doesn't look like it's set in 1887 so i i would be curious the reasoning behind some of the choices like you said if it's representing more mythology that they would have inherently had a shorthand for there's barely any blue and i would have loved to have seen this painting before what I'm guessing is the varnish aging, because mm-hmm. I think the sky would have been a light blue. Yes, it would be this beautiful – look at all the different colors in the silvery parts. It's like silver, blues, pinks, yellows, greens, and that's through the varnish. Yeah. So I love that. It's beautiful. The the, the fates only wear skirts, of course. Of course. Let's talk about each of the fates individually. When immortal is in the womb – Clotho begins to spin the thread of their life. In the Odyssey, Homer writes, He must look to meet whatever events his own fate and the stern Clothos twisted into his thread of destiny when he entered the world and his mother bore him. Now, this woven thread may make it seem as if everything is predestined, but in Greek mythology, mortals had the freedom of choice. You're asking me, how come both? Hey, Rowan, how come both? 
If we asked how humans pull every act of doublethink required to uphold any <laughs> belief system ever, we'd be here all day, Tracy. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> oh, thank you for spelling it out clearly for me. I really, that was <laughs> very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, the story tends to be in her spinning of the fibers, Clotho takes all decisions into account. Okay. Oh. So she kind of knows what uh -huh. your decisions are going to be. So you still get to decide she's just ahead of you uh -huh. on your decisions. I'd like to imagine this is kind of like the DNA helix coming together. Yeah. I love that visual image. Mm -hmm. The second fate, Lachis, or Lachis, or Lachis, don't, it's it's a lot, Um is the allotter. She measures out the length of mortal lives, which is pretty punk rock. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, she in particular conjures up so many visuals for me. Like I can imagine her pulling a red mm. thread mm -hmm. <laughs> between her fingers and kind of running her hands over the small bunches and the fibers, which are like conflicts and unwinding to twist and peer into the windows of the different moments and then letting the thread spiral together again. Plato wrote about her in his Republic. This is the word of Lachis, the maiden daughter of Anake, necessity. Souls that live for a day, now is the beginning of another cycle of mortal generation where birth is the beacon of death. I mean, that's beautifully poetic. Yeah, what? Birth is <laughs> the beacon of death. Yeah, thanks, Plato. Oof. Um, it's funny that you say that you can imagine her twisting and pulling and observing the threads because that's actually how I imagine Clotho. Mm. Like we both kind of latched onto that image, but for different ones of the fates, which is fascinating. It's interesting. I imagine Clotho making it and then Lashes like opening it up. Like, What'd you make in here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just love the fates. Uh, so I yeah, that's the fun thing about them is we can all have these quote-unquote headcanons or ideas or inspirations based on each of the different fates and taking the same information but turning it into different stories, which is why we love mythology. Mm. So Atropos is considered to be the most stubborn of the fates. Another meaning mm -hmm. for her name is the unturnable. <sighs> That's good. She chooses when to cut mortal's thread, which very often decided how noble the death was and thus where this mortal mm -hmm. would spend eternity elysium the fields of punishment but so on and so forth mm -hmm. if you die to fight another day it means you could die in a less noble way this is a very important job yes and i think it's worth taking a second to kind of reframe our understanding of death it is very culturally christian to imagine that death is the ending of the cycle of life where in many mm -hmm. other religions and cultures, death is a part of the cycle. Yep. And I, I, I think that the fates speak more to the cycle continuing. I like to imagine her as the younger of the sisters. I know. Mm -hmm. I know that it makes sense for like the eldest, the one who lived the longest, the one who comes at the end to be making the decisions about death. But I like imagining Clotho as the old woman who is providing guidance and wisdom in her weaving. And then Lachis is kind of the workhorse. Yeah. And then Atropos comes along without her prefrontal cortex all fully developed. <laughs> and it's just kind of taking scissors to people's lives with reckless abandon. <laughs> 
And and I think that's a really interesting interpretation. I always pictured it as Clotho, you know, Clotho the youngest, um, and with Atropos as the the oldest, mostly because I think there's a comfort in the idea of the person in charge of death being this more stable figure. Oh, I feel like it's th- comforting to think of the stable figure weaving and knowing the thoughts of your life and then kind of the stalwart middle person taking care of it. And then at the end, this young one's like, hee hee hee, with their rusted scissors. Be like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's been a good run. <laughs> like a very cute kind of Neil Gaiman personification of death. Oh, a sunshine energy version of death. I do love that. In his Republic, Plato says that the fates are the daughters of Anake, the primordial deity of inevitability. Okay, sign me up for that. That's such a cool title. <laughs> it said that Zeus had some control over the fates, and quite a bit, depending on the story. But, like, come on, your mom is the primordial goddess of necessity. Zeus can't touch that. Zeus can't touch that. Zeus, I'm sure Zeus says he has control over them. I'm sure he says right, it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sure, Zeus, you have control. <laughs> okay, uh, uh-huh. yeah, check out episode 100 for our thoughts on that. <laughs> Hesiod makes them a bit spookier in his telling, saying that they're the daughters of Nyx, the primordial goddess of night. Quote, also, night, bear the destinies and ruthless avenging fates who give men at their birth both evil and good to have, and they pursue the transgressions of men and gods until they punish the sinner with a sore penalty. There's a justice element that creeps in and out of this story. Sometimes it's just this is how it is, and sometimes it's don't fuck with the fates. I mean, never fuck with the fates. (laughs) That feels like that should be a baseline. But also, they could be the daughters of Themis, the goddess of justice and divine order. They keep the mortal life cycle from falling to ruin. They could be the daughters of chaos. I imagine the parentage of the fates is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure story for whatever your outlook on fate is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But I know you're asking, did the Greek fates, with their thread, have anything whatever to do with love? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Did the Greek fates, with their thread, have anything to do with love? Yes, the answer is that they did. They did. Um, (laughs) And I truly... I I went into this and I was like, this is my only mission. I have to find this out. And I kind of thought the answer would be no. Yeah? I, I feel like they do, don't they? No, I guess maybe not because there were gods entirely dedicated to that, like Cupid and Air, like Cupid right. Eros and okay. Aphrodite. So first of, I thought of when Orpheus ventured into the underworld to get Eurydice, which our lovely friend Spencer Stark and I covered in I think a two-part past episode. They're known in a few stories to allow people to come back to life. And Orpheus mm-hmm. was on a quest for love and that his goal was to bring his wife back. In that scenario, they just weren't managing the love part. They were managing right. the result of it. In the dozens upon dozens of the stories, the fates can be sources of prophecies. They can dictate a person's wealth. And they send the fates to punish crimes sometimes. Being a fate means playing an active role in someone's fate. (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised to learn that Aphrodite, Mm -hmm. the ancient Greek goddess of love and, quote, generation, which is like babies, Uh, was sometimes considered a fate. Really? In an ancient Greek travelogue where a man named Pausanias describes Greece, he wrote, quote, 
The inscription in the Temple of Aphrodite at Athens declares that Aphrodite, Orania, heavenly, Mm -hmm. is the oldest of those called the Moirai. Uh, In Orphic Hymn 55 to Aphrodite, it reads, quote, the triple Moirai as birth goddesses are ruled by thy Aphrodite's decree as the goddess of procreation and all productions yield alike to thee. So Aphrodite makes them and then and then everyone the fates decide what happens to them is that what they're saying there essentially No in this she is one of the three fates she is a fate which feels so yeeted out I don't know it feels tenuous at best and it feels convenient and it's something that we've talked about a few times on this podcast that it's important for people to understand when it comes to Greek and Roman mythology is you'll have gods with different aspects. So when we say Aphrodite or Rania, that could be a different aspect entirely of Aphrodite. It's also really important to remember, and I think we forget this because in this day and age we want everything to be definitive and argue about what is true, but part of mythology is the way that it evolves. Right. And how it is different based on need. Or desire. And time. We're talking about a civilization that lasted for hundreds of years. It wasn't always one set religion the whole time. I will add, though, that Aphrodite really did have her own thing going on. And I think this is in the minority instances mm-hmm. of what she's up to. Yeah. The fates did preside over the marriages of Zeus twice. Hmm. Once they united Themis or Justice and Zeus, and once it was Hera, his his wife of all wives. Yeah, the one that kind of worked out to be the I would say the most famous. Right. <laughs> in one of his comedies, the playwright Aristophanes wrote, quote, "Twas in the midst of such wedding festivities that the Moirai formerly united Hera Olympia to the king Zeus, who governs the gods from the summit of his inaccessible throne. They also apparently had the ability to control mortal women to the Mm -hmm. extent that the fates might cause her to fall in love. Aeschylus wrote in Eumenides, The Eumenides blessed the Athenians with good fortune. I forbid deadly and untimely fate for men. Grant to lovely maidens life with a husband. You that have the rightful power, you divine Moirai, are sisters by one mother, divinities who distribute justly, who have a share in every home, and whose righteous visitations press heavily at every season, most honored everywhere among the gods. That's a lot there for them. Have a share in every home, most honored among gods? I think the shared in every home is speaking to the fact, which I'll, I'll get into, that women's job was home. Mm, I Okay, interesting. I interpreted it as they have a hand in everyone's life, mm. which means they're, they're quite literally in everyone's home. Oh, I was thinking, like, if we're telling this story to a woman, your whole fate is how well you do at home. That is true, too. Do you make babies? Do you keep house? Uh-huh. What's going on there? Is your son – is your father – is your husband happy? <laughs> I do love you tripping over two, and then instead of fixing it, adding a third. <laughs> Husband, son, father. <laughs> Are all the men in your life happy? Yeah. So I would say, per the way we traditionally decide if something is mythologically accurate, yes, they do have a hand in love. Mm-hmm. Because they were in charge of all the fate things. Right, but that wasn't their thing. 
Right. And I do want to add, like, some of my sources are plays and some of my sources are books. And we're all like, yeah, cool, because they were ancient Greek. But we have it far enough in history that we're like, yeah, anyone who was around at the time could decide what is and is not true Mm -hmm. about mythology. But if you go onto the internet today and you read someone writing about how, I don't know, Jesus is going to come and people are going to be taken up into the spaceship, we go, you don't get to decide that. Mm. I think there's a larger discussion to be had, I think personally, individually in our own lives, who gets to decide what a myth is, what the true story of this it, – it's funny. Myths don't sit in what it is and is not true, like fake news. Like we're not looking at footage of bombs right. falling on people and saying, no, they didn't, which is a despicable thing to do, by the way. Uh, we're saying, did this goddess have a place among three other goddesses? Right. And, you know, what makes it true? Is it a person saying it plus a lot of time and suddenly now it's old enough that it could be true or it's interesting enough to be discussed? Or is it something else? Mm, Or did someone say it and then enough people agreed? Mm -hmm. So I hear you all at home screaming, absolutely just pulling your hair out, wondering which came first, the red string of fate or the three fates. Because I wanted to know so badly, mm-hmm. uh, and I knew how it was going to go, and I, it went exactly how I thought it would. I have no earthly clue. Yeah. I know you really wanted to get an answer to this. I know this was like the crux of your research. It, it is not to be known, because they're too contemporary to one another. So the ancient Greek civilization lasted from 1200 BC to about 300 23 BC, if you go from the Mycenaean civilization to the death of Alexander the Great, which is an incredibly long amount of time, the Zhou dynasty, which was one of the, quote, most culturally significant of the early Chinese dynasties and the longest lasting in any of China's history, lasted from 1046 BC to 256 BC. These numbers are so specific. They're really specific. Now, the Zhou dynasty didn't rule all of what is today considered to be China. Okay. And we have no way to know exactly where either myth was born. Because mm. that's the thing about myths. When we want things to just be born in a specific place, it doesn't. it just doesn't work like that. No, no, it doesn't. And I would not be particularly keen to credit one culture over the other to say fate equals string. And then it kind of spread from there because, one, people are people and we share a lot of experiences in common with one another. Both of these cultures had to deal with weaving. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it makes sense that if you're engaging with weaving for your survival that it would become a part of a story. And two, it's just not a good look to try to attribute a myth to one culture. <laughs> and a concept so universal as fate. Right. So, I mean, there's a smidgen of time where ancient Greece could have done it first, but also we're picking arbitrary dates. Mm-hmm. So I'm chalking it up to weaving, you know? We, yeah. We have a very visceral experience in our daily lives. We are trying to understand the spiritual significance of being alive. This makes sense. 
also what is generally considered to be the most extensive, one of the most extensive trade routes in all of ever, the Silk (laughs) Road, which ran between ancient Greece and the East around 336 BC to 323 BC, existed. And I, I find that of particular interest because the Silk Road was a pipeline for a number of imports and exports, one of them, of course, silk, spices, gems, minerals, but Also, that means stories. Yes. Mm -hmm. You have to think about how long it took people to travel from one area to the next. There is a permanence to the pace at which you travel. And also, as you meet so many people in places that are different from your hometown, the opportunity to share so many stories. And the Silk Road becomes this vehicle for learning each other's languages because you have to to acquire wealth. It's It's right there. It's right there. And we talked about it in the Pompeii episode. People did travel. People explored other countries, other cultures, other religions. And so for the idea of fate... And the string of fate and the connection and the weaving to spread across this long road, this long stretch that thousands of people traveled. Of course, that makes sense. Of course, it's something that is intertwined. It's also called the Silk Road and silk has thread. So that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So my other primary question in relation to both the red string of fate and the Greek fates was, was... fate tied to love for the benefit or control of women or for the benefit and education of men, which is the most hetero question ever. But I want (laughs) to remind everyone that this is very much wrapped up in procreation. Yes. So it is purposefully heterosexual. Right. In context of what we're talking about, this is the conversations that would be happening. Right. So at the time that both of these stories existed, and I mean the entire huge chunky swath of time, it's important to remember that weddings were exchanges of property in a much more visceral way than they are in many portions of America and the wider world today. In the modern era, even in their loosest form, weddings are still contracts Mm -hmm. and can become quite involved, but I would say by and large, women are not weighted against like farmland or head of cattle or bolts of fabric in most of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so it made me wonder when we tell stories about love and fate as they were framed in both ancient Greece and ancient China, who are the stories for? The women or the men that they were married to? This is, goes back to the, the questions that we like to ask on this podcast. Who is telling the story? Why are they telling the story? And who is the intended audience? Because that changes the myth. Oh, it does. It invites adaptation. So uh, in ancient Greece, the ins and outs of marriage were dictated based on the city in which one lived. So they could vary uh, in Sparta, perhaps more than any other city, for example, childbearing was considered to be every citizen's responsibility, and criminal proceedings could be taken up against those who, quote, married too late or unsuitably. Interesting. I knew married too late. I didn't know unsuitably. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. 
I wonder if that's a social stratification thing, but I, I couldn't figure it out. It sounds like you have to marry for the betterment of all of Sparta. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with the generalities we can make about ancient Greece kind of mm-hmm. at large. Uh, mm-hmm. To quote our friend Wikipedia, marriage was usually arranged between the parents of the bride and the groom. A man would choose his wife based on three things. The dowry, which was given by the father of the bride to the groom, her presumed fertility, and her skills, such as weaving. There were usually no established age limits for marriage, although, with the exception of political marriages, waiting until childbearing age was considered proper decorum. Many girls were married by the age of 14 or 16, while men commonly married around the age of 30, end quote. The presence of weaving in that quote was just mm-hmm. a gift from the fates just for me. Just for you. It was awesome. Uh, <laughs> it was great. So this is saying that for a woman to be skilled in something to do with the home was very valuable. Uh, being young but old enough to bear children mm-hmm. was the sweet spot. And I don't think it's youth because of hotness. It's youth because you're trying to have maximum number of kids. Right. Maximum number of kids and and maximum health while having them. And because – yes, exactly. Because it was fairly likely that a woman would die during childbirth. So you have to figure that out sooner rather than later so that a man can marry a different woman. And it – in ancient Greece, it was much easier for a man to remarry than a woman. I think in most cultures we talk about, that's the case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But yes, absolutely, ancient Greece. I mean, we we love to talk about ancient Greece in some ways was, you know, so different from the culture we know today and and had more open ideas about sex or things that we talk about maybe we're even less comfortable with today. Marriage equality was not something that I think they had really going for them. Women really didn't have any freedoms. No, no, no. And – the open sexuality was, of course, primarily for men. The more you dig into it, it's not like it was a free-for-all. It's not like, well, you were just allowed to love whoever you loved. It's like, no, these are very structured relationships with predetermined dynamics and social mores attached to them. Yes. Ancient Greece was incredibly devoted to monogamy. And things like pederasty were tied into that monogamy. In the paper, Dangerous Gifts, Ideologies of Marriage and Exchange in Ancient Greece, published by the Center for Hellenistic Studies at Harvard, Deborah Lyons writes, It has long been assumed that women were completely excluded from economic influence throughout the classical period almost everywhere in Greece, and particularly in Athens. This view of the economic exclusion of women, based largely on literary representations, has recently been challenged by social historians of classical Athens who argue that a degree of power was available to some aristocratic women through the institution of the dowry. Such power would in any case have been available only to the daughters of wealthy families and would have found its expression entirely within the domestic sphere. It would thus have presented little threat to the official gender ideology of classical Athens. Again, we are seeing homemaking mm-hmm. being the primary source of power of women. Yep. You can have power as long as it's within this particular space. There's an upper limit to it. I mean, it makes complete sense. You're giving someone the illusion of control and power because ostensibly this woman would have control of and power over the entire domain of the house. 
which is more than obviously the people that she has the domain over, but cannot be more than it is contained within that house. Absolutely. Lyons also raises a point that particularly compelled me, quote, that becoming a wife was the accepted telos of women is perhaps reflected in the fact that a common word for wife in ancient Greek, as in many other languages, is the same as the word for woman. That is the case with English, too. Talk. Tell me more. Talk about that. So the old English word wif just means woman, and it eventually translated into the word wife. We know today. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And I say awesome, and it makes me sound very like, ugh, marriage. But in this context, there's really no need to behave that way because survival was so different and patriarchy was so all-encompassing in a way that is both similar and distinctly different from how it is today. Like ancient Greece, ancient China had marriage practices that heavily featured monogamy and had very little rights for women. We turn to Wikipedia again, quote, The bride had to leave her family to become a daughter-in-law subject to the authority of her husband's mother. In this role, she could witness the addition of secondary wives or concubines, especially if she failed to produce a male heir. The husband could repudiate her for various reasons, and in the event of his death, remarrying was a challenge. This situation underscored the lack of economic independence for women as their labor focused on household duties without bringing in income. Farm women were largely illiterate, and they had minimal to no property rights. So we're seeing across the board, and obviously this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it, the more, the more money you have, the more power you have. So even here, it's a woman, you know, her biggest fear is her husband taking a concubine, and then you go further down the socioeconomic rung, and it's farm women were illiterate and had middle, minimal to no property rights. Right. This is only happening at a certain income level. If if you're poor enough, you don't have to participate in really intense social things like this. You have your own really intense social issues. Encyclopedia.com notes that the Zhou dynasty was a time that the institution of marriage became more complex in ancient China and that the systems stayed the same for many, many dynasties to come. Like ancient Greek marriage practices, Description of ancient China highlighted that the father chose the groom for his daughter mm. and that marriages were arranged based on social standing. So I imagine there was some amount of classic system, but truly it's one dad going to the other dad and seeing what mm -hmm. they could arrange. <laughs> Absolutely. And seeing how can they get the most out of that arrangement. Right, exactly. And they were negotiated as much as they were set up. So. This is how I'm reaching my own personal conclusion, mm -hmm. and it leads me to believe that stories of fate and love were told primarily for the benefit of women. I immediately thought about the fact that many of our stories as human beings come from our parents, so it would make sense to begin telling your young daughter stories where love is fated, mm -hmm. as very often parents were pulling the strings, pun intended, 
And the man these women would marry was already selected for them. Parents were acting as the hand of fate for these daughters. And if you can convince them that the choices you have made were divine, then not only are you as likely not to get pushback, you might get enthusiasm. Mm. And when I think about the cultural use of mythology, I was kind of puzzling out because I, I don't want to be prescriptive and I don't want to put my own malarkey on top of it. <laughs> so I sat down and I I just thought of how stories like this might have evolved to be used in the modern day and I turned to my own family because so much of mythology happens in the home. Yeah. The stories that we propagate in our home become the stories that we propagate in our town, in our country, and so on. And I can't think of a single time my parents told me a story about faded love. They may have done it, but not enough that I would remember. And while there were certainly love stories in the mythology that I was told as a child growing up, my father in particular went out of his way to tell me stories about women who determine their own fate. And in my culture of modern America, mm -hmm. as a white woman who doesn't have to worry about food being on my table, my future survival or ability to thrive is not dependent on my parents arranging a suitable marriage for me. So that type of story would not have a specific use in my household. And it is more useful for my parents to let me choose love for happiness, but to instill a sense of hard work in me, to mm -hmm. instill a sense of self-determination, which much more closely aligns with how to succeed in America in this day and age. Absolutely. I'm thinking back because my parents were, were and are big readers and big fans of storytelling. And, you know, I had a book read to me every night when I went to sleep as a child and they were about how to be a good person and how to be a hard worker and how to be um, a good friend. But they weren't – they were not a lot of stories about love. And, and I think you and I both had the experience of very early on being very voracious readers. Mm -hmm. So pretty early on in my childhood, stories weren't chosen for me and told to me. I had a lot of agency around getting to consume stories myself because my parents really encouraged reading. Oh, absolutely. So then I got to have a say in what – was presented to me. So my parents never read me many stories about fate or love, but from an early age, I I was drawn to them. And I think it comes back to what we talked about in the last episode. When you're fated to be with someone, it takes the the pressure off of you to make it happen. Mm -hmm. It takes the um, it, it allows you to hope for something because <laughs> it was meant to be. And then the the other part of it is it's giving you an inherent sense of worth because you have to be worthy of love because someone has no choice but to love you. And I have been thinking about that phrasing so much since we did the last episode. Mm. I think a lot about the idea of I have no choice but to love you, that that feeling of inevitability. And that's the fate. Oh, like you were made for me. You were made for me. And, and the, the romance of the idea of despite everything, I have to love you. Right. And it leaves more room for fault. Even yes. if you make a mistake, that person is divined to love you. And that you can't escape them. It's this inevitability, this 
combination of an inherent sense of worth with this driving need that I find so fascinating because what happens when you take something that you you throw every possible way to pull it apart and still the two people remain together is such a beautiful story. And fate plays such a part in that because it gives you this unbreakable bond that you can then throw mm. everything at and try and destroy. And then at the end of it, you're standing there and just that feeling of like, I have to love you. And like, right. not in a negative way. And like this, every part of my being was built for this purpose way. Right. Satisfying way. Mm -hmm. Like reaching the period at the end of a sentence. It's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. I, you and I do love stories like that so much. And I'm glad you made that point because I don't want the usefulness of stories in my childhood to make it seem like I don't love love stories. Yeah. And I also don't want my emphasis of these stories being for women to make it sound like I don't think they had use for men. Because I think that, one, if your father is making decisions for you as a young man, you might still be frustrated. Mm-hmm. It is less high stakes because you get to benefit from it. You have a lot more um, power within society. You have a lot more freedom. If you marry someone and you have the power to go out and have your own work or your own home or your own concubine or your own mistress or your own whatever, your power extends beyond the home. Whereas the maximum power a woman can have is the home. There's kind of an interesting inverse as well, which is from a man's perspective, if your wife is destined for you, it is your responsibility to care for her mm -hmm. and uphold that the like, sacred bond. But also if you're a woman and it is your – you are with your destined husband, it is your responsibility to make him happy. And it's so interesting – how opposite those are and yet how similar. <sighs> I think there's something to be said too, and I don't have a fully formed thought on this, so I'd be curious your thoughts. The idea of love as a luxury, because in all of these stories, you only get to have all of these things if you already have all your basic needs met or you already have a foundation under you. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. Love is a luxury because if marriage is a contract for survival, it doesn't matter if you love them. No. You just have to go through life being kind of nice to each other-ish, mm -hmm. maybe. Love is absolutely a luxury in the same way that I think indulging in a variety of stories is a luxury mm -hmm. that is brought to us by the modern age. I can learn bedtime stories from the other side of the globe. Right. I have not only the education, but the time to read. Mm -hmm. the, the capability of reading <laughs> and for very, very long periods of time. People people just couldn't read. You had mm -hmm. the stories that people told you or what you could make up in your head. And we forget that very often our brains are limited in our ability to imagine mm -hmm. by what we've experienced. Uh, you think of – you know when people say elder chores, like it's a combination of 10 squids and 10 dogs, but you can't comprehend it. Like, Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You've seen squids and you've seen dogs. You can yeah. kind of mash it up together. Maybe mine is different from yours, but I can definitely comprehend that. Now imagine someone who has no context for what a squid is at all. So education is one of the best ways to control people. Absolutely. And if you live in a society 
where you can't read and your understanding of community is much smaller. When you imagine far, you imagine far as over the river and through the woods, mm-hmm. but still where you see people that probably don't look too unlike you and don't behave too unlike you and don't value things too unlike you. And you live in a society where men have power and women take control of the house. Can you even conceive of a reality where that is not the case? And I think I would like to think we can, but would you be inclined to? It would be the very rare person who thinks outside the box or is very special. I think we're also meeting that idea head on right now where when people talk about late stage capitalism and wanting to have a different system, very many people can only imagine this like caricature of communism that is Soviet Russia and cannot conceive of systems that are not inherently capitalistic. That's something that I'm learning about all the time. I'm trying to learn about a variety of ways that economic systems could be different. And I'm constantly met with my own inability to conceive of a different way of being. So when we talk about fates, not just in the case of love, where love is a luxury and marriage is this important inevitability, if fate is controlling how the world works, then I was fated to be the king. You, you, you have to be comfortable with your lot in life, and I'm the king because that's what the gods said is true. Mm-hmm. And it's an inherent sense of worth. It's very – it's troubling. It's, it's fun in one regard. It can be really enjoyable. It can be great for story structure, and it can also be very troubling. And as we've explored fate in the Red String of Fate and in the – Greek fates, mm-hmm. I have been trying to examine the places in my life that I just thought something was the way it is because that's how it had to be. The idea of it is this way because it's always been this way is the greatest inhibitor of change. Yeah. And I, I think I don't even realize the things that mm-hmm. I thought were set that way. Where is fate in my life where I didn't know that I put it? Who taught me that? And what use do they get? Yeah. Ooh, what a great question. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting examining this from a more romantic perspective, but also I think walking away from these two episodes, it's really worth examining it from a political perspective. And I think that it would behoove us all to think about what we've been taught, who told us that things can't change. And why would they do that? Mm -hmm. And there is a negative side of it, which is, you know, I'm on top and you're on bottom and that can't be changed. That's the way that it is, maybe. But there's also a positive side of it, uh, which is, you know, I think about how my parents raised me and instilled in me that I am inherently worthy of love. Right. And while, of course, we all have days where we struggle with that. I was raised with that. And so Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that is something that I can fall back on. And there are people who have been taught the opposite. Yes. So it's such a great point to take a look at your your fundamental beliefs and try to examine them from from an additional perspective. It's something that 
you and I think about and talk about a lot, the idea of a growth mindset and a change mindset. And just because mm-hmm. you learned new information doesn't mean that it's a reflection on you. If I come out here and I, I very confidently make a statement and then I get new information and realize that that statement needs to be changed, it's not a reflection of me being a bad person because I was wrong. I have new information and now that gets put into my arsenal and and I can update and change and grow. And updating, changing, and growing based on learning is never a reflection of who you are as a person because you were wrong before. And that took me a while to learn. I was someone who was very much, I thought being wrong when I was younger meant that I was bad. I learned recently, this boggled my mind, especially among very smart people. There is a culture of people thinking you that they're very educated in themselves. They examine themselves very closely. But is that an important, vital, clever, intelligent examination of yourself? Or are you addicted to shame? (laughs) Yes. And that idea that if someone says, you know, you hurt my feelings, and your first jump is, oh, well, then I'm a bad person, you are one that's just not true. You don't have to be all good to be good. Right. It's not helpful. (laughs) But also, you are inhibiting your ability to rectify the situation. Mm -hmm. You're also inhibiting your ability to improve yourself. And I don't mean that in that rigid, like, we're all trying to improve ourselves and drink green juice and take vitamins. I just mean if you get away from the idea that making mistakes and doing wrong makes you terrible – then you can just do better the next time. Mm-hmm. You become grateful for a gentle piece of advice or constructive criticism. And I think people who have you know, done maybe art or creative things, you get feedback on it. And as you get more comfortable getting feedback, you start to really appreciate it because you have that, that inherent, well, I know I'm a good writer. So when I get feedback, mm-hmm. it's not them telling me I'm a terrible writer. It's them saying, I'm not even acknowledging that I like the story because we already know I like the story. So here's- mm some feedback on a sentence structure or this or that or here so you can improve your art or anything. And once you can feel that way about maybe a hobby or a skill, you can then start branching it out into other parts of your life until you get to the point where you yourself recognize that you have inherent value and inherent strengths. And when you get new information, maybe it's feedback or it's your therapist telling you something you don't want to hear or whatever it is, I have found that I've learned to be actually really, really grateful for those moments. And that sounds so Mm. like I'm standing on a soapbox talking down to people, but I genuinely have had thoughts where I make a mistake and I think, I'm so glad I made that mistake right now because maybe if I made that mistake in two years, it would have had catastrophic failures and it would have destroyed Mm. this or that. And I'm never going to make this mistake again. And this was so minor. Thank you, self, for messing up now because you get to not have to do that in the future and you've learned from it. And like, I don't have a better way to describe it other than I just have little moments of gratitude when I can make a small mistake and learn from it and grow and it never needs to be bigger than it was. Hmm. I also want to emphasize, though, it's okay if you make big mistakes. Yes. For everyone. I realized that in when I am at odds with someone, say they've hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. I over the last few years have worked on this and I am not interested in someone's shame. I don't need them to exhibit shame and as this idea of like they have to repent to me. Right. I am so much more interested in an, okay, I won't do it again. And 
And while an I'm sorry always does feel wonderful, we love like I'm sorry, I I wouldn't want to do that to you. I have worked over the last few years to try to turn my brain into like it's not about the I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's about the not doing it anymore. But I, in my own personal head, I feel like I have to like fl- flagellate myself and like be shamed to yes. repent for my mistakes. And it is buck wild. You and I having a very aligned way of approaching conflict has benefited yeah. our friendship so much in adulthood. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's something I, I we both had to work and learn because we, we didn't just grow up being like, we're good communicators. Like We stumbled and worked at it actively. Continue to stumble <laughs> and continue to work. Yes. Oh, goodness me. All right. We got from fate all the way to shame. Uh, <laughs> Tracy, tell me something good. All right. My something good this week is a book, another book that Kaylee Bray recommended, which is called Paladin's Grace. And it's by T. Kingfisher, who also wrote Nettle and Bone, but it's another one. Of, it's a whole new series. And I just am loving the writing style. So <laughs> I've been, I'm going to have two something goods, but it's the same thing. It's the two books I'm consuming at the same time. So the mm. first one is Paladin's Grace. It's just the, such a clever and unique fairy tale writing style romance story that is beautifully done. And the other one I had told you about off Pod Rowan, I think you would really like it, is The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. Yes. And that one I also, I recommend both of them as audiobooks, but specifically The Anthropocene Reviewed um, because John Green reads it. And it's beautifully, beautifully written. And it's bite-sized because you can take each chapter because every chapter is a so every chapter is a, a something in the Anthropocene that he is reviewing. The Anthropocene being the epoch in which we are currently living, which is notably, uh, which notably has us as humans in it. So that's why it's called the Anthropocene. And this book is him reviewing it. He's reviewing everything from sunsets to the movie Harvey to Diet Dr Pepper and everything in between. So each chapter is is a story and a insight into his mind and his thoughts in an almost essay way. So it's great when you just want to have 20 minutes to listen to a chapter, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there as you're consuming this beautiful thought process of a man navigating the world that we live in. So Paladin's Grace and the Anthropocene Reviewed are my something good. It's so funny when you recommend books. I downloaded the audiobook of the Anthropocene Reviewed instantly. Yeah. And there is a type of I know for myself that there's a type of title you can say and a type of book cover can have where I know something is an instant download. Mm-hmm. And there's another kind of book you recommend and title that I hear where I take it a little slower because I am notably much less patient than Tracy is. And Tracy can stick in a story to the amount it deserves. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good way to put it because I'll drop a book if I don't like it. I know, but I, if you've dropped a book, like that doesn't even exist as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> fair. If you stick by a book, there are things that you'll go, eh, I just didn't pay attention to it. And I, that thing will be the popcorn in my teeth. Yes, that like, is very I, true. This is not, this is not a virtue. 
<laughs> no, but it's, it's such a good point because it's ways of consuming stories. I know this about myself. Everyone who takes my recommendations, take it with a grain of salt, but I don't always choose the best quality thing if I like it. If I like it personally, I don't care if it's bad necessarily, but that's not great when you're recommending to someone who maybe cares more about the quality of a piece over the fact that it made you go <laughs> and kick your feet in the middle of the night. You also will enjoy a story that has really great concepts but less good writing. Yeah. And I can't. Yeah. Uh, I I tap out and I hate it because I want to be more like you, but then I just rage read. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this is all based on taste, right? You, not trying to moralize right. about what oh, books no, are Oh, no, not good. at all. It's just taste. But the advantage of you sticking it out and reading is that I just get to only read books that have been pre-screened. That's why I love when uh, – I didn't read this newest T. Kingfisher book because I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it. And I get a text from Kaylee one day that says, you need to read Paladin's Grace right now. And Kaylee, I'm here to tell you, you were 100% correct. Which, to be fair, Kaylee and I have – like our, our Venn diagram of books we like is almost a circle. It really is. So Kaylee's front line. You're second line. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm third line. That's really funny. <laughs> All right, Rowan, now it's your turn to tell me something good. So this week I went to my lovely friend Emerson's show that was a fun musical tribute to Edward Scissorhands. He's such a sweet, kind, lovely human. Yes. He generally, the world gets net plus one kindness because he exists. And and I'm not upholding that, I don't think. Like, I think I'm I'm neutral. I'm value zero. I think we're both pretty value zero. I don't think we take away anything from this world, but we're no Emerson. Right, exactly. Emerson has such brilliant comedic timing, and he played a drag part where he played one of three townswomen in Edward uh -huh. Scissorhands who kind of acted like the Greek chorus of the show. And... Part of the gag is that he's a dude yeah. uh, who's being one of these, like, pick a little, talk a little, <laughs> yeah, 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 stay-at-home yeah. ladies that are just kind of insufferable. And he's so gosh darn funny. <laughs> and I, it was a treat to go out and spend a, a chunk of my time just watching my friend be amazing. Uh, I and loved that. all of us got to sit and eat and drink and celebrate him and it's a good way to spend life watching your friends be happy and do what they love to do i want to put that on a throw pillow i got new throw pillows this week too oh <gasps> i love new very throw adult purchase yeah i would have sent them to you immediately i actually thought about this i was like should i just send them to tracy they're really good but they would pick up malcolm's mm. hair in a way that no fabric reasonably should. No, some fabrics just do that. Some are just the, – the, the vacuum is nothing compared to the texture of some fabrics. Right. So you'll just – unfortunately, you'll just have to admire them from afar because I, I know that they would annoy you mm -hmm. <laughs> in practice. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, that's awesome, though. I'm so genuinely happy for you. Thanks. I'm an adult. I have new coordinated throw pillows. I was faded. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was faded. And it was faded for all of you to join us today. Nice. But now it's time for us to say thank you so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Mm -hmm.
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Oh, you forgot the whatever? <laughs> if you could do that again, where, where did you throw whatever? I just in? put it in there. Anything whatever to do with love. Okay. But did the Greek fates uh, with their thread have anything or what did you, what did you say? <laughs> I'm the worst. I'm so sorry. I'm just teasing you. You, you had my back and I made it awful. <laughs> round three, round three. No, I got this. <laughs> Here, you just move your mouth and I'll say it, but mm-hmm. it's a podcast okay, okay. so they'll just hear me say it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone know my mouth is moving right now. But Rowan, did the Greek fates with their red thread have anything whatever to do with love? Oh, wow, you did it really well. (laughs) Thank you.